Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Welcome back to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast. This is Karen Rands, and I'm very excited that we're, we once again are able to schedule a subset topic on the cannabis capitalism. And for those that have tuned in to prior shows on this type of a topic or just generally listen to it, that may not have heard me do a cannabis capitalism show in a while, let me give you a sort of the breakdown of why that is. And my perspective on it and why I'm really excited about this particular show today and the guests that I'm going to introduce to you in just a couple of minutes. So as somebody that has been involved in helping with entrepreneurs, get to market, grow, get capital to do that, become sustainable businesses, and investors to follow their heart and and start putting money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market, create jobs and create wealth. Well, it's not just buying and selling stocks, not just buying and selling real estate. We're having an impact with our money and it's not, uh, there's a whole other shows on impact investing and all that kind of stuff. It's really just dollars and cents. You can choose to put your money into something that is, um, you know, not just a buy and sell transaction, but it has potential ripple effects in the marketplace. And I wrote this book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, with a goal to bring net new capital investors into the marketplace that weren't currently engaged in angel investor groups, either because of time restrictions or geographic restrictions, and just really weren't as aware of, of angel investing in general. And it's a primer to teach people how they should, should they, would they, could they, and how do they go about doing that. And I realized, I looked out there and I said, we are in such a unique moment in time to be able to watch an industry be birthed, unfold, and grow through all of the growing pains, the bumps and bruises along the way of creating an entire industry. I mean, maybe if you were 40 years old and potential to be an investor when the dot-com stuff was just happening back in the 80s, like when Apple was first coming out or Intel was first coming out in the computer industry, the microcomputer industry, and, and connectivity, wire, uh, wired connectivity, and ultimately the internet was all coming. Because when we first came out with PCs, if you think about it, we didn't know there was going to be an internet that was going to connect all these things and there would be clouds and all that stuff. We had no idea. It was just a, a productivity tool that got you off of a typewriter or a pen and paper and allowed you to store work and expand upon it and share it in different formats. And it was a whole industry that was birthed out of that and there was lots of growing pains and things along the way as companies broke through a new business models a new innovation and and succeeded or didn't succeed and a lot of that was based on other people's belief that the industry would materialize coming from somebody in IBM I could tell you there was a lot of people in IBM that for a long time didn't believe the PC industry was going to be anything like what it is right now right and IBM suffered the consequences of that that behavior, that attitude for a very long period of time. And they've you know, pulled themselves out of it. But you know, that was where we are. And so somebody for myself and my age demographic and my economic independence demographic, I could look at the cannabis industry and I could say, oh my God, we are right at the threshold of something that is going to fundamentally change so many aspects of everything that we do within the marketplace, whether it's, whether it's medical treatments, 
whether it's just recreational, what new kind of bars, new kind of apps, new kind of anything that you do, food and beverage, just everything about it, you know, and, and the whole way that you create your, your products, how the, the cost of goods, how your, your cost of sales, the dynamics associated with that of getting a product from its inception and idea to the market. And on top of that, you got a mindful of, of legal and regulatory environments that you have to navigate. But as with anything that's on the ground floor, there is huge opportunities for creating wealth in that if you can apply good, basic, practical sense on it and look beyond the surface of what looks like an opportunity to the surface, but be able to go beyond that into what are the potential implications downstream. So when I find an organization such as the, the folks I have here on a day with Canapreneur um, that is doing just that, they are making profound, wise investments, helping entrepreneurs succeed and understanding their insight, just like they're not, they're not actual fund at this moment in time, but very similar to how a venture fund or, or an organization will help navigate an industry or help investors gain greater insight into an industry or into a, a sector of an industry or a method within an industry, they're doing that for the canna industry. And so, um, you know, buckle in because you're going to get a lot of great information. It's going to be profoundly new for many of the listeners because they've never really thought about canna. They've looked at it. They might be, they maybe, maybe never even thought about a private investment. And so this may be the first area that they get involved with because they just see it as, as such a hot opportunity. That was why I did it because I wanted, I thought there would be why I started this particular segment was because I wanted to have a way to draw in potential investors that would then go, Oh, wow, this is something I want to do, but I don't really have any idea how to go about doing that. Maybe I should go get a book <laughs> inside secrets to angel investing. There's my little plug. To, to be able to to understand how to actually even participate in private equity that is not liquid at the time or may not be liquid for a while, um, that when I start to put my money to work as a divestment or divest divest a di a divest can the a a way to divest a portfolio. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, where's my syllables there? Um, so with that, let me introduce you to Canapreneur and my two guests. I have Michael Scott and Todd Sullivan about to join me here in just a second. So Michael is the founder and CEO of Canapreneur Partners, which is a cannabis holding company that has developed an extensive lead in, in the fact, you know, we, we, I put quotes in it because it is a trademark term, but they're replicating kind of a shark tank model and that they look at, at, deals and he'll describe more about that process and they use their experience their network of investors to decide which in deals to invest in but you know and they're from the boston area but that believe that they'll tell that they've gone beyond boston and massachusetts um as they've grown their uh their business portfolio and their approach to the marketplace they have a proven track record in bringing cannabis ca companies from pitch deck to nine figures i can't wait to hear about one of those and so, Michael, after spending 20 years in the financial services industry, managing clients' capital and investment and growth opportunities, really cannabis kept popping up on his radar. And he'll talk about how he got involved, more involved in that. But he brings significant experience within the financial sector. And then we also have Todd Sullivan 
He was the investor consultant at Canapreneur Partners. He also is a hedge fund manager, an angel investor. And I'll just say on the side, a lot of times you don't find that combination in people because they're two different hats that they wear. And it's interesting that he has bridged the gap between big fund management into private investment as an angel investor. And I'm, uh, there'll, there'll probably be a separate show just on that topic coming up in the future. He's the author of Value Place blog, whose writings have been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and has appeared on CNBC, Fox News, and Fox Business. And so with that, welcome to the show, Michael and Todd. How are you doing today? We're doing great. Thank you for having us on the show, Karen. Much appreciated. Very good. So, Michael, let's get started. Talk about how you, you know, shifted what, what, what was the reason to get out of traditional investment management and, and what was it about this cannabis that was popping up on your radar that made you say, let me take a second look at this and see if this is something I should get involved in. Yeah, I was back in um, 2016, actually. I decided to, to take a look at the industry. Uh, you know, being a recovering workaholic, we'll say, I decided to, to take a sabbatical and take some time off. And my focus on the sabbatical was two things. I wanted to, to study the most explosive industry to get in. I was already involved in the, the wealth management or finance industry for quite some time. And then I had gotten into uh, the fitness and martial arts industry as well and some other businesses. And then I was looking kind of for what's next. And I had, you know, my business is set up. I had leadership and partners in place running them. And um, I started exploring cannabis um, over the course of 2016. And I was studying billionaires that had built themselves from the ground up. And by the end of that year, it was to me just undeniable that cannabis was going to be one of the greatest both entrepreneurial explosions of our lifetime, in addition to, I think, a, an amazing investment opportunity. Um, you know, by the end of that year, I really saw, you know, both of those things and wanted to integrate the learnings from it. And um, so that's kind of how I first started getting into the industry. And then, you know, Todd and I bumped into each other last year, um, I think, from some of our social media work. We've done a lot to kind of build our social media channels and and, uh, you know, lucky for me, I bumped into Todd because he's been just a tremendous asset, not only, you know, as a guy that was running his own, you know, syndicate, um, but also, you know, one of the largest investors, actually the largest investor in my company, Canapreneur Partners. But, um, you know, great experience in the world of investing. You know, it's nice to have another person talking about your offering from a perspective of being an actual investor. So, so Todd's been great. That's terrific. So Todd, how did you get involved in the Canna industry? So about 2017, 2018, I started looking into the cannabis space because I, I recognized it was going to be a, a large, large, large money-making opportunity. Um, but the more I researched it and the more I looked into it, uh, I started coming across some facts that really dispel just about every single myth there is about cannabis. And really, as I looked into it more, yeah, I mean, so, you know, cannabis was always viewed a certain way based on things that the government told us and things people said. But now that it's been legalized, we actually have facts. We actually right. have data. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick ones that really got me into it. It was that, you know, when you, when you legalize recreational cannabis in any state, 
uh, you immediately see a drop in opioid overdoses, um, both legal and illegal, by about 20 to 30 uh, percent. Right. You see uh, immediate drop in alcohol sales and alcohol drunk driving arrests and alcohol drunk driving deaths and uh, alcohol-related, you know, social disturbances. And you see, you know, prescriptions for highly addictive um, uh uh, pharmaceuticals for sleep disorders and pain management, they, they collapse also. So I, as I looked at this industry, I'm like, so it's a budding industry that has huge social benefits. Uh, so to me, there was no way it wasn't going to be a massive opportunity um, to not only make money, but to, as, as we educate the public and as it rolls out legally nationally, just, just to help people and make people's quality of lives better. So I, I began looking for, you know, people to invest on the private side into the backs of entrepreneurs. And, and like Mike said, we bumped into each other last July or August it was, and uh, it's been a fantastic relationship so far. I just have yeah, to say, they, it really is amazing. You know, when I think about what I've seen in the first three, four years of this industry, like Todd, it's been quite eye-opening to see how much stigma there is out there based in false realities, based in, unfortunately, I think a lot of just, misinformation that was put out there with political spin, et cetera. But uh, this is really an industry that's, that's doing a lot of good, saving lives. It's improving quality of life and candidly going to create a lot of millionaires and billionaires. Oh yeah, absolutely. I had, uh, and I've done a couple of segments with um, uh, one of the, uh, a lawyer, David Feldman, where he speaks often and has a blog about the history of how it was legal, how it became illegal in this war on drugs and how, and, and really the social economic roots of why cannabis became um, so highly regulated and classified as your worst kind of drug and the impact and the intention of that when it came to political powers trying to manage to what they felt was an unruly population. So um, I encourage people to go out and listen to that show. Go search for David Feldman on my, my string and get it. And if we have uh, Todd back in the future, we could probably dig into a little bit more of that and, and sort of really the implications as we go forward because, you know, I think there is a great deal that w- needs to happen when it comes to be, to for it to be reduced down to the classification so that we can actually do research on the direct impacts and the biochemical basis of why it is that it's beneficial and even more, and even designing drugs that are based on it, that specifically works within the biochemistry of the people that it's targeted to, because that's still sort of a gray area that, that we deal with. And so I think we'll, we can continue to always have good conversations about that kind of stuff, but let's get into um, talking specifically about, Canapreneur, and you know, just we'll talk. We'll start with Massachusetts since that's where you guys are based. And I pulled your your fact sheet that's on your website, and I want to tell folks, you know, it's the show, the link is in the show notes. But if you want to go get, they've got videos, they've got some good information on their website. It's canapreneurpartners.com. Please go visit that. Sign up for their newsletter to continue getting more information about what they're doing and what's happening. So. I was really stuck, struck by the fact that in, when they looked at the difference, you got a little chart on here of Oregon, Colorado, and Massachusetts, 
And even though there is the sales are, you know, they're a little bit less in the initial introduction under Massachusetts, the number of dispensaries and open uh, is significantly less. And so talk a little bit from a, a history of how you see the way Massachusetts rolled it out, the regulatory environment there, because obviously they have a much tighter control on who, get, who can dispense it, or at least at the time that it was launched. And then, and how that compares with, from an investor perspective, looking at if you're doing something at state levels, what's kind of things that you should, that investors should be aware of and within the context of how you've experienced it, the growth in Massachusetts. Sure. So, I mean, Massachusetts is a very unique marketplace. Uh, I mean, I think that, I mean, number one, it's, I believe it's the hottest market on the East coast today. Um, you know, I think Florida, once they go adult use, um, will probably take over that top spot. But today, Massachusetts is hot for a number of reasons. I mean, it's got the highest cannabis consumption rate in the country. I was shocked when I found that out. I thought California would be in that spot, but it was not sure. It's got the, it's got the best profit margin for cannabis in the entire country. It's got a very controlled, constrained um, you know, flow to market. So what that means is if you're one of the smart businesses that can get through the regulatory hurdles, you, you've made it through uh, where most of the businesses will die, which is in that funding to getting through regulation phase. Once you get through the other side, now you have a massive market with crazy demand um, with very few stores. I mean, you know, the analytics in Massachusetts compared to Colorado, it's I mean, basically you're looking at you know, less than 10% of the competition in, in most cases um, for a significant upside in terms of the, the amount of wealth and the amount of money that's here. So, so Massachusetts, I think, is a pretty compelling marketplace. Um, I think that smart investors really need to look at the states and not just look at the companies, and that is a unique aspect of vetting private companies because, you know, a business starting up, let's just say all things were equal, you know, in terms of the quality of the entrepreneur and starting with the same amount of capital, I can tell you that that group out of Massachusetts and the group out of Oregon, you're going to look at two very different investor returns. And that's because of the landscape, the regulations. If you're not studying and understanding the regulations of the different marketplaces, then um, you could get yourself into a lot of hot water as a private investor in the cannabis space. So is that something that as part of your criteria or when you're evaluating a deal and you put um, sort of a, the pros and cons or the, sort of like the limitations, the risk factors associated with it as you decide that you're going to move forward and help uh, put capital to work in a particular company? Like, for example, let me give it within a context that I was curious about. So given that there's a limit on dispensaries, is there in some other states that have um, recreational legal? There's you know apps that have been developed where you can it's like a almost like an Uber Eats you can get it delivered kind of a thing. In is and that's you know something that Nevada has for example. If some if an investor was looking at that and going oh this is going to be kind of hot, there uh, it's something that sounds like it's probably not available in Massachusetts because of the way their regulatory regulations are written to contain the number of dispensaries. 
Is that something true to be considered as a factor? And so, like, how does that play when you look at a company that might be just in-state or potential at some point in the future to be marketed in multiple states? So I just want to make sure I'm answering the correct question. Are you ask, asking more about the delivery model and if delivery is here or is it more <laughs> about – Well, about I think it's – I know. I, <laughs> I have a multi-part question there. I apologize. Um, I, I, it's more because I was thinking – you know, myself, if I was somebody that was a novice at this and I'm thinking, oh, what a clever idea to be able to deliver, I would want to invest because I might assume that that same application, just like any other application out there, would become pervasive in all the markets. But there might be a a regulatory restriction in that and you couldn't make that assumption. So it's another level of due diligence on a business opportunity that may not present itself at the surface. And I was just using that as an example of like a Nevada versus Massachusetts and something that might be a carryover to other evaluation criteria. Yeah. So I, I think given the, the youthfulness of the, the industry right now, I think when we look at state regulations that what it really does is it, it, it eliminates certain states for us or allows us to focus our, our investments into certain states have a certain regulatory structure like Massachusetts. So, for instance, we're not particularly interested in the California market right now. Uh, there's a lot of problems with black market operators or black market product that are really kind of hurting the margins of those dispensary owners. And until that's worked out, it, it kind of like takes it off our list for, for investable assets. So, you know, if we like to focus on Massachusetts because it is so highly regulated. We understand the regulations. And when you're able to be first movers in a highly regulated market, it, it kind of makes it difficult for competition to come in. So as investors and, and business owners, that gives us some place you want to start. You know, we like markets like Michigan, and we're looking at the surrounding states of Massachusetts that, you know, are starting to legalize and looking like they're going to have similar regulatory structures as Massachusetts. So that would enable us to kind of focus our efforts in the Northeast right now as state-by-state state kind of rolls in, we're, we're allowed to, you know, increase our footprint in this area um, because we know it so well. Okay. So uh, is there something that when you look at recreational versus uh, medicinal and the difference in the way that states might have, have those kind of regulations, is there crossover that if it's recreational legal you can assume that there's less restrictions on the medicinal or is it is you still state by state so it it, it varies from state by state but what i'll tell you is classic is in most states medical opens up first and then in many cases the entrepreneurs or businesses that want to be in adult use uh, will also get into the medical first because it's typically not always the case but in many of the states if you have already in on the medical side, you know, it's typically easier for you to get in on the adult use side. Um, I do think of them as separate business models that, that unfortunately in this country, the vast majority of dispensaries, I, I would say it even on the medical side, 80% of the model is really an, an adult use dispensary, although it's labeled a, a medical dispensary. In fact, I think that you know, when you when you study and look at the industry, it's a new nascent industry, right? So so basically, it's got a learning curve. And I think one of the things that we're going to see is that 
the consumer walking through a medical dispensary really needs a different level of experience and advice than an adult use dispensary. However, I can tell you that in Massachusetts and honestly in every state that I've experienced medical and adult use uh, dispensaries, 80 to 90% of that business model is identical. However, those medical patients are really suffering from PTSD, having real suicidal thoughts, really dealing with severe back pain, really dealing with cancer. And those are all some of the, uh, I mean, those are all very significant medical conditions. And, um, you know, your typical medical dispensary is just not set up for that as a, uh, you know, as a solution or to provide that value. So I think of them as different business models. I think it's going to be interesting to see what and how the medical side of the industry plays out um, when legalization does come from a federal standpoint. Okay, so that's that's an interesting perspective I hadn't really considered. <clears throat> so there's still kind of a Chinese wall between traditional medical practitioners and medical cannabis as a dispensary kind of approach. So there's no... And there's no yet integration between ancillary services that are for people that might be coming to a medical dispensary yet. It seems like that would be an area of opportunity if somebody were to do that, or are there specific restrictions that prohibits them being under one house? Yeah, there's a lot of restrictions. Uh, You know, I, I, I actually think we've reached a time where there's actually plenty of doctors that believe in cannabis however, may lack the education and and their infrastructure uh, inhibits them from really giving advice, medical advice in cannabis without putting in jeopardy their medical license. So I think that right now, you know, and that's part of the challenge is, you know, the federal legalization, the federal status of being illegal creates a lot of challenges, right? Because, you you know, you got states saying, hey, it's legal, it's got medicinal benefits. You got the feds saying (laughs) no, But the federal law is very pervasive in all aspects of how we live, right? So, right, right. So I do think, and and I and I think your point's a good one, Karen. Uh, I do think that someone's going to solve that dilemma because I do believe it's a dilemma. It's one that's on our on our radar, by the way. Um, So we do plan, believe it or not, we plan to deploy more of our capital on the medical side of the industry than the adult use. And we do see that the medical side of the industry, everyone's kind of, everyone's kind of punch drunk, so to speak, and focused, overly focused on adult use. But we believe the biggest multiples, <laughs> yeah. uh, shorter term, is going to come from the medical side of the space. However, you just got to dig harder to find them, and you have to navigate the regulatory <clears throat> risks more. If you look at it uh, right now, the fastest growing demographic for cannabis users are the baby boomers. You know, they, they, their usage rates are growing about 75% a year. Uh, and this is a demographic who probably hasn't used cannabis in 40 years. Maybe they used it in high school, 40, 50 years, and they're hearing all this stuff about it, and they go to their normal doctor and can't get answers. You know, they have to go find a cannabis doctor. And those are a lot harder to find. And, uh, you know, so there's a huge gap between the medical, the traditional medical field and cannabis as far as what it can do for people. And there's a demographic who desperately needs that. So there's an opportunity for someone to fill that void. And Karen, I, I am firmly of the belief the world is going to figure out through research and good data that cannabis is a damn super drug. And here's why. Oh, yeah. How many times in history have consumers wanted something so bad 
that they're willing to be criminals in the eyes of the federal law and go purchase the cannabis as a medicine or launch a store or raise money illegally, how many times has that happened from the ground up? Not many. Right. And what that is, is that that's people from the ground up saying, no, this helped my loved one with PTSD. This helped my, my friend with depression. This helped my uh, uncle with cancer. I mean, there's just too many of these stories for there not to be anything to it. And I, I will tell you that that was the final motivating factor for me to jump into this industry. And, and, and there's been a number of people I've talked to that have similar stories. In fact, I met Al Harrington, who's a former NBA basketball player. Him and I connected at a con, con, uh, cannabis conference I spoke at, Connor Global, a couple weeks ago. And we were both sharing the story. You know, he was sharing how it changed his grandmother's life as a medicine. And I was sharing how it helped my mother through one of the worst PTSD episodes we'd ever seen, where we were <coughs> genuinely concerned about her well-being. And cannabis, essentially, in that scenario, acted as a is a wonder drug for us. We uh, we spoke at the Money Show in Florida uh, two weeks ago, maybe it was now, and uh, we had a room of probably 60, 70 people. And before we started, Mike said, you know, by show of hands, who in this room either has experience or knows someone that is, has significant health benefits from using cannabis? And probably three-quarters of the room raised their hand. Yep. Yeah. And, I, the, you know, there's, there's probably no other single thing people can take that would have that kind of results. You know? Yeah. It, so it's let's, out there. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're the anecdotal and the really, I mean, it's not completely like registered golden stamp approved scientific, <clears throat> but even the report that they originally did back before it was declared illegal under the Nixon administration <clears throat> talked about the medical benefits of it. So it's, yeah. I mean, the information is out there. Yeah, and in reality, the federal government, you know, they, they, they approved Marinol back in the 80s, which is synthetic cannabis for cancer and anorexia patients. I mean, the federal yeah. government has already blessed it as having medicinal benefits. They just can't get past, you know, they, they, don't, they, don't, you know, they, they declared it a, a class one narcotic, which is laughable. It doesn't meet any of the criteria to be a class one narcotic, yeah. which is it has to be addictive has no medical use, and it has to be dangerous, but you can overdose on it. And cannabis does not <laughs> qualify for any one of those scenarios. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's just basically stubbornness and ignorance on the part of politicians. Yeah, so it's kind of a public service announcement in case people tuning in on this are one of those baby boomers that hasn't smoked it since college. And they're like, oh, you know, it made me paranoid. Or I, you know, all I could do was, you know, watch a movie. I couldn't do anything else or whatever. <clears throat> I can't even imagine trying to function even though I'm in pain, you know, or I have these episodes or whatever and also have this head high. So talk a little bit just practicality about the variations of it and how a consumer can control what they, how they intake it, how they, they um, <clears throat> apply, use it so that they can be extremely functional in their life and not feel like they're drunk all day long or something. Well, I think that's the beauty of having a regulated market. I mean, when you were back in college, you know, buying bags of weed from the local <laughs> kid, you, you didn't know what you were getting, right? You didn't know what, what pesticides were sprayed on it. You didn't know where it was grown, who grew it. Uh, so having a regulated market, now we know, we know what strand it is. You know, some types of, 
uh, cannabis actually give you energy and are actually, you know, lower your appetite. You don't get the munchies from them. And there's other kinds that are more for relaxation. Uh, you can pick your brand. And now we have, because of regulation, you know how much THC is in each strand that you're getting. So you can pick a, a low THC, which is, you know, the high part of it. Uh, you can pick a low THC, high energy strand of cannabis and, and not have that, you know, I'm, I'm buried in the couch now. I can't move for the next two hours feel. Some people like that, so they go for the high THC relaxation strands. But having a regulated market allows the consumer to go and say, this is what I'm looking for. The person behind the counter who has experience and says, okay, this is, this is what you really want to go for. And, and, and they, know what they, know, they know what they're buying. And, and they can customize their experience to what they want it to be. And, you know, a lot of the, the paranoia I've always, in cannabis, I always thought came from people worried about getting busted using it, Right. Well, if it's yeah. legal now, that, that, that paranoia is gone because you're not worried about using it, right? You're yeah. doing illegal activity, so. Yeah, the other aspect of paranoia, I, I think the, the biggest risk with cannabis, one of the biggest risks with cannabis is it's the edibles, and when people don't know much about dosing, you know, if they, yeah. if they haven't tried cannabis in 20 years or never, and all of a sudden, you know, they chew down 50 milligrams of a chocolate bar, <laughs> Oh my yeah. gosh! You know what? They're 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 going to be wrapped in for like three hours of a of a paranoid roller coaster ride. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not a good experience. So, but 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 let me kind of use an analogy. It's like let's just imagine if you have a headache and there's no dosing information, but you heard just anecdotally from people, hey, this this these white pills over here, they seem to help that, but you have no clue how much you should take, you have no instructions, you have no data or research. Now that's actually, in my opinion, more dangerous than cannabis, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Because if you take too much aspirin, you could die. If you take too much ibuprofen, your stomach bleeds. If you take too much uh, cannabis, I mean, I don't know, you're going to get the munchies, you might get paranoid a bit, but two or three good at <laughs> So that, my friend, is one of the biggest challenges of cannabis, and that's why you know the value proposition with medical dispensaries needs to change, right? Yeah. Because because there there really needs to be a lot of medical advice with these patients on dosing, because it breaks my heart that there are people out there that cannabis can be an amazing amazing medication to create a a much better quality of life, but then maybe their first experience then. You know, because they couldn't talk to a doctor, they couldn't get a prescription that actually fit their needs. You know, they took the wrong amount, had a bad experience, felt too high, and never got to really experience the benefit. And, and that, I guarantee you, that's happening out there right now, because of this this complicated mess of state legalization and federal illegalization. Yep. So as we have uh, just a few more minutes, I want to sort of look at the landscape and for our listeners to. Uh, kind of get some some tidbits or insights of of the vastness of the opportunities because most time people focus on the cultivation side and uh, the different types like on your your one sheet shot you know thing you looked at product distribution and of course you got buds concentrates some things I've never even heard of you know <laughs> infused. Pre-rolls, there's all these kind of things that might be new language or new something to people that are getting into it. And that's kind of where people usually think of because that's sort of like the product side of it. And then there's the distribution side, the brick and mortar side of it. But there's so much more when it comes to an industry. If we go back to the start of the auto industry or the start of the computer industry, as I described it before, 
So I ran across, uh, I met a gentleman at a networking event the other day that had a back office um, operational management business software, cloud-based software that they had specifically had been, you know, around for a while doing well. They look at the cannabis industry. They said, you know what? These are all small businesses. They got the same challenges in running their business and some unique ones in the way money is handled, the way benefits are handled, the way taxes are handled. Whole other conversation, but that's all due to the law, the federal regulations. But <clears throat> let's focus on that. So, do you, when it comes to people looking at the landscape, and then there's you know the recreational tools, the consumer products that people might use to consume or store or something like that. And then there's you know there's the scientific side of it where they're breaking it down and analyzing what's in it. They're documenting it for the uh, FDA on on the components of this. There's all kinds of aspects of that. So when you look at opportunities, are you, and when you have investors that come to you and say, hey, what about this? Do you see, are you looking at it where, well, something like this business operations thing is probably low risk because there's no, you know, and then there's these others that are high risk, but we need to have a diverse portfolio of all these different pieces of the entire industry do you look at it like that, or do you see, see certain areas are such so so strong that you're primarily focused and wedging into a a, spe- a specific sector of the marketplace? I, I can give you an yeah. So uh, right now, we, we obviously we see the Northeast dispensaries is probably the cheapest entry point and most secure investment. You know, um, we have 33 recreational dispensaries in Massachusetts serving roughly a 40 million dollar. 40 million surrounding population. Um, each dispensary does about 15 to $20 million a year in sales, costs about a million dollar open. So right now, because of the, the youthfulness of the industry, that's where we see the play. Um, but obviously as the industry matures, I mean, we haven't, even, we haven't even begun to touch what the plant can do medicinally, um, you know, when it's, when it's gonna be studied and certain cannabinoids can be taken out and put into a pill form to treat various diseases or illnesses or, or things like that. We haven't even touched that. And, you know, there's cannabis infused drinks and food coming down the road and consumer packaged goods and things like that. Um, so all of this stuff is on our radar and we see deal flow from that all the time that we kind of put in this, put, uh, put in this box for right now. Um, but, you know, right now, the, just your simple dispensaries, you know, owning real estate in the cannabis right now, we, we view as, really the low hanging fruit until the industry matures. But it's okay. Like, so, but I, you get your finger on the pulse of where it's going and what's happening. And that's why it's good for investors to get to know you guys so that they can get those kind of insights as well. Yeah. I mean, the way we evaluate risk, Karen is, I think you got to look at it in different categories, categories, right? So, so to your point with the question, you know, do we view somebody that's in like the ancillary side of the business as less risky as some of the others? Well, in, in some aspects of risk, right? So uh, I can tell you that somebody on the ancillary side, you know, I can tell you that it's easier. If they're, so if we're comparing an all-star entrepreneur raising capital to get launched in ancillary versus plat touching, I think today ancillary is easier, right? But pretty soon, I actually think it'll be easier on the plant touching side. So that's a, it's a different, it's, it's a risk level that you got to think about, right? But when I look at risk, I look at, okay, A, is this operator going to execute the plan that he has ahead of him? 
B, is the market going to be there the way this operator thinks, and can they actually capture enough of that market share to be able to monetize it and to create investor value, shareholder return? Um, you know, so I'm looking at those types of things. And believe it or not, one of the biggest risks that I vet for that I find a lot of our peers don't focus in on, it's uh, I'm, I'm digging into track record of success, and I'm using that to measure emotional intelligence. It's probably one of the greatest things that I bet for with these startup businesses because, you know, I don't care if an entrepreneur is in the hottest sector, the most explosive industry, but you know what? If they don't have a track record of success of, of being able to make stuff happen, get it done, if they, don't, if they didn't prove they have that emotional intelligence, that tenacity, or grow it through that process of achieving those results, they're much less likely to get a company off and running. And that's really important in cannabis because I'll tell you that it's hard to launch any business in any industry. The failure rate is extremely high. Uh, I will tell you it's like 10 times harder in cannabis uh, for a whole host of reasons. So yeah. how you vet and how you mitigate that risk is just critically important. And that's part of why we, we ended up launching Cannapreneur Partners. We saw this amazing private investment opportunity these cannabis businesses, and we said, hey, we're going to develop both sides of our business, right? One, quarter, one core of our businesses, finding these amazing entrepreneurs, you know, that's the Shark Tank side of our business. The other side of our business is, you know, working with investors to thoughtfully place capital and help them understand and mitigate the risks and, and, and make sure it's aligned for, for them. So th those are the two components of our, our business. Yes, absolutely. And what you said there is, is so true, right? And I guess you bring in that experience from prior lives that you bring into the Canada industry. Everybody thinks angel, everybody pretty much acknowledges angel investment and entrepreneurism is a risky endeavor and there's all kinds of ways it can go sideways when you're getting involved with that. And so Canada just adds another level of complexity on that equation, but the, the tried and true methods for evaluating and doing due diligence on it are true. And that emotional intelligence that you spoke of is a key component of that. So I appreciate you sharing that. All right. We have just about a minute or so left. Uh, of course, I want to encourage people, again, to go to cannapreneurpartners.com to get more information about the organization and Mike and Todd. And then uh, please go to karenrands.co to, uh, to get more information about how we help entrepreneurs and investors and access to the book. Any final thoughts that you'd like to say, Mike or Todd? Yeah, I mean, I would just say to, to any investors that are out there um, that are thinking about getting invested in the cannabis industry, um, I would say it's fun, it's exciting, there's insane return on investment that can be made, uh, but just make sure you do your good due diligence, um, and if you're looking for a, a company or a group to help you with that, um, certainly look us up, we'd be happy to talk to you, and then, um, and have fun. I mean, this one of the cool things about this industry is I've now been involved in a number of industries, but I got to tell you, none of them are near as fun as this industry. So enjoy the journey. Uh -huh, very good. All right, then. So I'll wrap this up and say thank you very much for being on the show. 
And I think we've uh, conveyed a lot of great information. Obviously, a lot more time could be used to go into more depth on some of these things, and we'll work on getting a second show set up specifically like that because I have more questions, but not more time. So with that, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. Please, uh, if you're on iTunes, go ahead and rate the show, share it, and onwards and upwards. Thank you. Thanks.